Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. And we're back online. A new episode of Visegrad Insight. Uh, this time we're recording it uh, from two home offices, actually from the office and from home office. Um, it's uh, Monday, uh, 29th of March, 2021. And we just read disturbing news uh, about uh, accident and death of the richest Czech, uh, Mr. Kellner, uh, owner of majority, I mean, most of the shares of PPF Group, uh, a company um, who, which we, which we also uh, criticized in, in a number of articles for uh, non-transparent uh, activity in the field of media, PR, companies, relationship to China and influence on Czech politics and Central European politics, including recently also um, in the Western Balkans. Um, more of that story and other stories that shape the Central European public debate of the week in our weekly outlook, um, released every Monday and prepared by our team and extended team of fellows, uh, associates and other experts. Um, so this is the story that opens today's uh, Uh, Monday, uh, Monday outlook, and of course, by by the time the, the podcast is released, uh, you're most most likely hearing it on Thursday or afterwards. Uh, we we will know more about Mr. Kellner's uh, accident and what follows from that. But there's uh, there's a lot of other stories, and today I'm sitting uh, as every week uh, together with Quincy Klut, managing editor. My name is Wojciech Przybylski, and we're discussing those stories and also highlighting some of the articles and um, analysis that that we brought to you, and they're also being published in English on our website for subscribers. Uh, you need to subscribe to read them. Or, uh, or or through partner media in national languages across Central Europe. Uh, so, Quincy, what else struck you as um, you know particularly important uh, for this week? Well, it's hard to ignore maybe also the news from Slovakia and uh, a new prime minister uh, announced um, over the weekend, Eduard Heger. So um, a familiar face for those maybe who follow Slovak politics uh, as, if I'm not mistaken, finance minister, taking over um, from uh, Igor Matovic, who came uh, under scrutiny for um, negotiating a deal over Sputnik vaccine um, all by himself playing Cavalier Sol, but uh, well, his position became untenable. Uh, essentially, the other coalition partners uh, really demanded that um, he would uh, step aside. And um, well, the question still remains um, how, how long this uh, reshuffled government uh, will last, because obviously it seems that Matovic is also set in becoming part again of the government. Um, so it's, it's unlikely that uh, we've heard the last of him and some of his exploits. So, um, well, what do you think about it, uh, Wojciech? That is revealing the limits of um, populist politics. I mean, the politics that is built on charisma, that is built uh, purely on communication with, uh, with less of a, 
of a structure. Of course, of course, Slovak politics as uh, has been for uh, I mean many times in history very fragmented, very volatile, and and sensitive, uh, fragile to uh, to you know disturbing political actions. But in in the case of uh, Mr. Matovic. Um, whom you also see portrayed on on our uh, illustrative material in in uh, you know throughout uh, the series that that is drawn by Daniel Garcia, our illustrator for uh, for political cartoons, and it's uh, the, the 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 picture of Igor Matovich shows. He's uh, he's the kind of person who's been uh, who's been who, who's been like <laughs> who liked to play with puppets and who liked to. Um, to do this kind of uh, populism, but you would say softer style, and uh, while uh, focusing on communication, focusing on uh, decisive actions for the show, for the like, uh, for 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 the people, you would say, of course, um, he overstepped a number of times in the recent months. Um, the strategy and draw and the lines that have been drawn by the coalition uh, partners, and and not only they th- that they threatened, they they really been dropping out of this government, uh, threatening the whole uh, you know the, the 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 political system in Slovakia to uh, to experience another uh, another election. Uh, Mr. Matovic was by example showing that even if you are leading a country that is distinctively distinctively. Uh, different from from the other three of V4 in terms of you know uh, EU integration, pro Western clearly pro Western agenda, you you may fall uh, into traps um, of of this contemporary populism, and and of course I mean I I'm saying pro Western agenda, but Mr. Matovic uh, in secrecy in secrecy uh, bought um, bought vaccines uh, from Russia. In a way, illegally uh, by by the law, by, by the very laws that uh, Slovakia has been making, uh, that showed uh, that uh, doing politics by communication only for the show is not paying off. Uh, it's not. It's not simply. It's not holding. But there are others. Uh, but there are other topics in Slovakia this week. I mean, of course, we're talking Visegrad uh, subjects. There is plenty, as as usual, from Hungary. There is there is a lot from Poland. With new restrictions, new um, civil uh, liberties uh, restrictions coming in. Uh, in fact, many lawyers argue unconstitutional. Um, and um, yeah, and and uh, the opinion polls and trends in Czechia suggesting that so far uh, pirate party is uh, gaining. It's uh, moving ahead uh, and it's keeping keeping uh, the ruling ano at a distance. And so there's plenty to read uh, all nicely bullet in bullet points um, about each country, at least one, uh, a couple more in, in some other cases. Uh, I, I think there is nothing, uh, nothing more important, however, um, than, uh, than what, we, that what we just touched upon in terms of, of politics of, of Slovakia. We will all see in the coming days and maybe by the time the podcast is released, we'll know if it's if it's still even um, uh, relevant to, to speak of this current government or not uh, of the outgoing government. 
we'll see how it plays out. But there are other stories on Visegrad Inside, and Quincy have been uh, publishing them very, very uh, recently, and uh, some some are in preparations to be published by the date of the release of this podcast. Why don't we tell um, our listeners to you know what to expect and what to read this week? Yeah, so this month we continue to focus um, on the Eastern Partnership. Uh, there's definitely plenty of opinion and analysis still to be expected there. But I want to highlight uh, one interesting take um, coming from Italy, um, providing a perspective on the Eastern uh, Partnership and also seeking an explanation for why in a lot of Western European EU member states, there's still often a very Russia-centric, Russian-centric um, perception of of the of Eastern Europe, of the Eastern neighborhood, and um, that this is still a a problem that continues to haunt the Eastern Partnership framework. Um, it's um, it's also a problem of lack of knowledge, of course. And uh, as long as as this is a problem that persists, we we also see this temptation of uh, going over the heads of six Eastern Partnership countries and uh, trying to uh, for a lot of EU leaders to come up with solutions about strategic uh, partnerships or uh, outlook with Russia, rather than to take um, the wishes of of the peoples in the Eastern neighborhood also seriously. Um, so this is um, uh, uh, Andrea Pipidi and um, Giancarlo, whose name I've now briefly forgotten, but uh, Gianpaolo. Yes, yes. Um, apart from that, um, I can also share something about a maybe a, a more. Um, an interesting take, slightly different from what we sometimes publish, is uh, is on uh, regarding Clubhouse, which is a, a recently started. Um, you could call it a social media platform, but it's also a drop-in chat application where, essentially, as um, as politician or as uh, anybody, essentially, can set up a club and can find their a means of directly communicating with an audience. And um, while well, we we see the the early signs of of growing popularity in Central Europe, and in particular some some politicians also um, making use of of this uh, platform and trying to create a more direct line of communication with with voters, with journalists, um, and it was going to be interesting uh, to see what will happen. And the inter um, the analysis uh, is provided by our junior fellows Marisha Chupka and uh, Kamil Jaronczyk. Who's been who've been talking with a, a number of MEPs, politicians from the region to to gauge their 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 perception of Clubhouse, uh, how how it also suits their their interests, their agenda, and, and how it could transform. Um, maybe a little thing to add is to see that uh, Twitter has already or just announced a couple of days ago it's coming with its own uh, arrival called Twitter Spaces. So it, there's definitely something happening here. Uh, when it comes to political communication. And uh, yes, Wojciech, what do you think about that? Uh, can something like Clubhouse transform the way we talk to politicians? Um, well, the, the way that politicians talk to us, I, I wouldn't be naive to, to think that, uh, you know, politicians all of a sudden want to massively listen to 
to a number of uh, voices that are there in the air. But, but definitely it's an interesting app that shows, I mean, it builds its popularity based on uh, Zoom fatigue, video chat fatigue that we observed, we've been observing over the last uh, year. Fantastic tool on, on one side. I mean, the, the, speaking of video chats, uh, it's, it's also something very, very tiring for the, for the eyes and, and people really enjoy audio. And I, I think we can uh, definitely uh, say that of our listeners, uh, who are listening to, to our podcast, to, uh, to many other podcasts that are, that are there. And, and by the way, uh, stay tuned, uh, read Visegrad Inside because we'll be releasing by next week, um, story about, uh, the best, uh, uh, podcasts uh, on Central Europe and from Central Europe, apart from Visegrad Inside. So we we're doing a review. We're listening to other colleagues uh, across uh, other editorial teams and, uh, and and experts who simply put together and journalists who put together stories from Central Europe to um, uh, to to enrich the debate and go much beyond the headlines. Uh, so what I wanted to add about the Clubhouse and this particular story and what struck me uh, was um, the, uh, the presence of the far right and presence of the most progressive uh, elements of the political scene from Central Europe on Clubhouse platform. Um, and our uh, colleagues, uh, that uh, the authors of the, of the article, Marisha and, and Camille, they uh, they've been in touch with them. With some, they they tried without much success. Maybe because those politicians still didn't didn't master the the social communication, social media communication skills. And it was very very interesting for me to to see that the leading discussions and the lead in the new media technology is um, is by uh, the far right and by the progressives and the middle is somehow lost in in, in that and I, i'm just wondering whether that is a global universal uh, phenomena uh, or or it's uh, only in this particular region that that those who wish to present themselves at the center and i mean center right center left and of course we have a huge polarization across the spectrum but still there are those who are closer to the center they're not so much present at clubhouse and i wonder what that means maybe it just means that the the you know the far ends of the spectrums are are more uh, agile they're searching they're more active and they're more into experimenting all the time and and the heavyweights only catch up later. That's that's to be seen. That's to be explored, and definitely something um, we we found uh, interesting in that story. Uh, again, fun to read. Definitely, I, I recommended it. Uh, also, we we have curated this with with Quincy as uh, as the story of the week. Really, uh, uh, very very nice piece, and we hope to bring more political reportage on the political culture reportage. I would say or even culture reportage as it is, uh, also, also to Visegrad Inside. So tell us later what you think, uh, write to us with your feedback. Thanks for tuning in to the Visegrad Inside podcast. We're very glad that uh, you're catching up with us uh, on Central Europe uh, week after week. 
and uh, we have a couple of nice uh, holidays, a small break ahead of us. So we hope uh, you also make the, the best of the Easter holidays and uh, we'll definitely be back uh, next week uh, with the latest updates. But in the meantime, for the second uh, part of this episode, um, we'll be discussing or at least hear uh, part of a discussion from uh, the upcoming Bulgarian elections, parliamentary elections, which are taking place this Sunday, 5th of April. So uh, if you want to know everything about uh, what might be happening there, uh, what to expect also from the elections, then it's, uh, it's good to stay for after the break. Let's listen now to the recent Visegrad Inside breakfast discussion, uh, at least the public part on the record, why Bulgarian elections matter. Uh, organized on the 29th of March, Monday, uh, the very same day that we recorded this podcast, and uh, that featured uh, the, the following speakers. Dimitar Bechev, a research fellow at the Center of Slavic, Eurasian and East European Studies University of North Carolina, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council connecting uh, to the meeting uh, from Oxford, where he's also affiliated. Asia Metodieva, a Visegrad Insight Fellow and a researcher at the Institute of International Relations in Prague. The discussion is uh, moderated by Spasimir Domaranski, Visegrad Insight Fellow as well, and a professor of political science at Warsaw University and at Lazarski University. Uh, uh, Dimitar, without uh, uh, stealing too much of, of your time, I just wanted to, to, to highlight a couple of things uh, related to the Bulgarian reality. Um, what, what we see there is, uh, uh, is a very specific environment in which these elections are going to be held. We, we, we were facing almost a year of protests against Borisov's government, and usually you would expect after such protests that uh, the incumbent prime minister would have problems with securing his uh, uh, seat uh, and uh, uh, winning elections. On the other hand, over his last term, another oligarch went, went into exile. Uh, and we have a boiling uh, conflict with uh, uh, North Macedonia uh, that has a direct impact on the enlargement policy of the, and the future of the Western Balkans in the, uh, and the European Union. Um, what is the state of the Bulgarian democracy ahead of the vote? And uh, uh, how these elections may impact the country's position in Europe? So now I, I pass the floor to you, uh, Dimitri. Thank you, Spas, and thanks for this uh, generous introduction. I'm uh, really happy to be with Vishikvat Inside today. Um, just uh, let me give you my thoughts, and I warn you, these are very broad, broad brushed um, reflections on the situation in, in Bulgaria. I'm looking forward to what Asia has to say. Uh, and, and others indeed. So on the first question, the state of Bulgarian democracy. Bulgaria is a non-consolidated democracy and it's likely to stay that way for a long time. Uh, consolidation has uh, not been in the cards uh, for a long time. And all the problems you associate with weak democratic regimes are very much salient uh, in the country uh, to start with um, lack of uh, rule of law. Um, limited uh, degree of accountability, uh, persistent uh, state capture. And this is, of course, reflected in low, low levels of trust uh, in institutions. Uh, there is a new survey be before the elections just released today by Mar Market Links, one of the polling agencies, uh, which registered 69% 
distrust uh, in Parliament, uh, 64 in the Cabinet, and another 53% uh, distrusting uh, the judiciary. And this is nothing exceptional. It's not uh, any news for anyone who has been following uh, Bulgaria. So um, in this uh, environment, populism that has been the talk of political scientists and experts, uh, not just in Europe, but uh, worldwide, uh, is nothing new in Bulgaria. Indeed, I would argue that populism is not the exception, but the norm uh, in Bulgarian politics. Over the decades, uh, really since 2001, when uh, the former King's Party appeared on, on the scene, uh, that's been the default position. And we've seen many different formations appear one after the other. And that will be the case uh, this time around as well, with uh, a party set up by a TV anchor, um, by the name of Slavi Trifonov. But uh, Borisov, of course, is a great example of populism. He, for a long time, had um, put together the winning formula, uh, combining uh, charismatic leadership, uh, anti-establishment rhetoric, but also in substance uh, going with the mainstream on the EU and really not rocking the boat domestically uh, and entering in all kinds of uh, agreements, whether ad hoc or long term, with different stakeholders on the oligarchic front and the party political front. So uh, this Janos phase formula of, of populism without the populist content uh, was um, ensuring what brings, of course, stability in Bulgaria over the long, long term. And now the question with these elections, at the risk of getting ahead of myself, is whether the, the model works anymore, given all the challenges, not just the protests and the lack of trust, but also the external shock that the COVID crisis uh, has come, come to be. Uh, and another tendency over the past five years or so is the shift to the right. That was evident with the, the current coalition where Borisov's GERB uh, has been ruling together with a block of uh, nationalist parties. Previously, he had the line with um, the more reformist, liberal, pro-European, if you will, um, uh, strength of Bulgarian uh, party system. But now um, he kind of uh, morphed into uh, um, or tilted to the right. So this is, this is the broad picture, uh, all the ills of the Bulgarian system. One thing to bear in mind, comparing Bulgaria to other countries in Central and Eastern Europe, and I don't, I, for, because I, there are quite a few diplomats and state officials, I don't want to offend anyone. So I, I won't name the countries, but Bulgaria is not going for the strongman model. Uh, even if democracy is compromised, uh, it's run by a cartel of different institutional players. Borisov is not uh, calling all the shots. He has to coexist with uh, various lobbies, even the opposition party um, uh, movement of rights and freedoms, but also the, the powerful judiciary. Um, and that's the tragedy of the status quo because um, many of the players have been co-opted one way or the other, uh, making those uh, problems with uh, corruption and state capture um, endemic to the system. So now let's look at the elections what will happen at the elections. Um, I think the impact on the EU will be limited because for a long time, uh, the formula Borisov put together uh, is likely to, uh, to survive. Um, the formula was that uh, Bulgaria would behave uh, irresponsibly at the European stage, won't uh, be rocking the boat on issues to start with um, refugee quotas, 
all the way to the debate we had about um, the democratic conditionality attached to uh, the COVID-19 funds. Remember Hungary and Poland putting up a fight. So Bulgaria always goes with the mainstream. But the other part of the coin is that uh, the expectation is that there won't be any hard questions about what's going on inside Bulgaria. Um, and that, that equilibrium has uh, persisted over the years. Now, what happens uh, in the elections, of course, will be that we end up with a much more fragmented parliament with new populist players inside, but also genuinely pro-European forces, uh, which um, not just pay lip service to uh, accountability and good governance, but also actually believe uh, in, in those principles and making some headway and actually getting past the threshold. But it will complicate uh, the government formation. We probably will end up with a broad-based coalition of, of one sort or the other. Uh, Borisov might or might not be the new prime minister, even if Garib will be certainly the largest faction. And I'm happy to go in, in, to the Q&A um, speculating about the, the possible formats and maybe Asi can uh, chip in on, on this. Um, um, with, what will be without Borisov, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's certainly that he managed over the years to establish good rapport with a number of European leaders, uh, starting from Angio America all the way to uh, Viktor Orban of Hungary. Uh, a new Bulgarian prime minister, even if Gerb remains in government, uh, will probably uh, introduce some changes. But again, on the positive side, we will see um, much more genuine, um, hopefully, I mean, that's, that's a theory to be tested, uh, commitment to, to democratic reform. One silver lining, uh, and the, I'll wrap up on the second point, the impact of the elections, is the fate of the United Patriots, uh, the far right. Uh, are they going to stay uh, in government uh, if they, um, well, certainly if they make it past the 4% threshold, they might be in the next cabinet. But in case they fail to clear the threshold, which is not unlikely, uh, that will mean that uh, we might see a different format. Uh, and of course, uh, that will mean that um, Bulgaria's position on enlargement that's been the concern of many in Brussels uh, will change. But even with them, um, I, my expectation is that Borisov will make a U-turn on the issue of, of North Macedonia. Uh, because uh, the timing is everything in politics and uh, listening to people in Skopje, they work on the assumption that there will be a, a turnaround in the Bulgarian position. Uh, just the question is what will be uh, the give and take. So let's close this footnote. Now, let me go to the third point, uh, because I'm conscious that uh, time is, is, is running short. Um, is there a genuine threat to democracy, uh, but also to media and civil society in Bulgaria? Well, I don't think so, uh, partly because the situation is already dire as, as it is. It's, it's difficult to see how it erodes any further. I mean, if you look at media, for instance, uh, media has media standards um, media have been eroding over the past decade and a half. Bulgaria has been sliding down in all kinds of, kinds of international indices. Um, there is an oligarchic capture of the media sector. There is lack of transparency. And there is collusion with, with government, where, whereby public funds end up uh, sponsoring media. And in return, um, you have favorable coverage, um, especially when it comes to television stations. 
And this is nothing unique to Bulgaria. This is the model you see in a number of countries uh, in Southeast Europe, but also in Central Europe. And it's likely to uh, remain the case, whoever happens uh, to uh, be at, at the top after this election. And again, I think Borisov has probably the best chance uh, giving his uh, survival skills. Um, there is a silver lining, however. Um, the record of this election, but also what we see up to now, uh, is that um, you actually can start your own media uh, and transform that into political power. Uh, that's the case of Slavi Trifonov, the, the television anchor. Now, you might disagree with his policies. Um, I mean, he, he, some of his uh, sidekicks have been on record with uh, conspiracy theories regarding COVID, for instance. Uh, but it shows that um, you could capitalize on your um, kind of a popular appeal, start a television station on the internet and then turn it into a political factor, um, sort of stirring things up uh, domestically. So it's not that the media market is totally um, captured and, 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 and uh, immune to um, disruption from the outside. Uh, secondly, uh, what we've seen over the past years uh, is uh, the renewal of external interest in the Bulgarian media market. And it's understandable given the day and age we live in with malign foreign actors being involved in manipulating the media sphere uh, in, in, in the region. What I'm referring to, of course, is the return of Radio Free Europe uh, to Bulgaria. Uh, same thing happened, of course, in Romania and Hungary. And personal disclaimer, I'm a columnist for the website, so um, just to put my cards on the table. But they have made a difference in the sense that uh, several corruption scandals have broken out uh, thanks to this, this platform, even if it's online only and not um, on television. And as we know, ultimately it's television that counts, not um, social media or, or, or the internet to that degree. So that's my first uh, point that, um, I mean, or maybe second point, uh, the media situation is dire, but there are several openings uh, that uh, kind of um, provide limited grounds for optimism that, that not all is lost. Um, I think it's similar with civil society. Uh, civil society, uh, you see some green shoots uh, clearly with the protest movement. And that's been a long time uh, in the making. <clears throat> We've had several waves of protests in Bulgaria, uh, starting in uh, 2012, really, or, or thereabouts, earlier in the decade. Uh, these are new types of actors. They're not coming from, or not entirely coming from the old NGO scene from the 1990s, which was dependent on external funding a more genuine uh, bottom-up uh, energy uh, galvanized by social networks. Uh, and they're probably um, showing their feet because they can rally people on the street for days on end and can transform their energy into new political parties. And indeed, what we're going to see now uh, is, is, is an interesting test case because a lot of skeptics have said, uh, not just in the case of Bulgaria, but uh, generally that uh, civic movements don't make a difference because they demobilize easily. Um, it really counts who uh, casts a ballot and of course who counts uh, the votes. But we have a case of transformation of civic energy into political action. 
So that's uh, something positive. It's also positive because for a long time in Bulgaria, uh, the external actor, the external anchor, uh, namely the European Commission, uh, was providing the, the, the check on executive uh, power. So it was substituting for this accountability deficits. Uh, since 2007, that Bulgaria became a member of the EU, that's not the case. You cannot uh, force Bulgarian politicians and institutions to do their job and to um, abide by the rule of law, by external pressure. The only uh, actors that can make a difference uh, are local, local actors. And we are seeing much more of that now with the emergence of, of uh, this movement. Having said that, and that's my last thought, um, just a little bit of skepticism. We are not talking about uh, a huge number of people. Um, it's about my rough estimate up to 10% of the populace. Of course, they are concentrating in big cities close to TV cameras and so on and so forth. But when it comes to counting the votes and the electoral contest, uh, the impact might not be transformative. Uh, indeed, we will now see um, how much uh, difference uh, this kind of mobilization uh, makes. Um, so that's pretty much uh, what I have to say. Um, Bulgaria is an interesting case because it shows uh, everything that has gone wrong in this region. Um, the promise of EU integration and democratization uh, that didn't deliver, but also maybe some of the potentialities uh, for change uh, that some things have, um, can, can um, gradually um, turn in, into a better direction. So let me stop here. Thank you, Spas, and uh, thank you, Dimitri, for this um, really comprehensive um, analysis of the, the political situation. And I would like to um, very briefly um, engage with a couple of arguments that you made, um, starting with, with the idea that Bulgaria is uh, unconsolidated democracy. This is, this is uh, the reality, and it is uh, more likely that it's going to remain the case uh, even after the election. But I would like to um, stress that um, there is, a, in my view, a process that started in 2013. It's a sort of a transitional phase that Bulgaria is going through, like a moment in which we, uh, we have seen, um, I wouldn't say a critical mass, but certainly people who disagree with the system. They disagree not only with one or another ruling party, but they disagree with the lack of rules, uh, according to which the Bulgaria, uh, Bulgarian society has been living for the past uh, uh, 20, 30 years. And I would call this like a turning point for, for the Bulgarian democracy, like the, the protests of 2013 and the, the ones that we saw last summer in 2020, uh, in which one probably new aspect is that the role of the Bulgarian diaspora played a very a uh, very visible part of this process. We, we saw this agreement not only on the streets of Sofia, close to the cameras, but also a lot of support through social media, people going uh, in front of the Bulgarian embassies in different countries and expressing their solidarity with, with the civil society in, and the protesters in, in Bulgaria. So I think that this, this matters um, to, some, to make some assessment about the, the state of, of, of the Bulgarian democracy. On the other hand, I would say that uh, there, is, um, there is a process in which we, we, we see for the first time in these elections political actors who either supported openly the protests or emerged from, from, from the protest 
uh, and whether there will be delegated enough trust from, uh, from the voters. Of course, we are going to uh, know uh, in the day after, after the election. But this also uh, says something about, uh, let's say, the, 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 the possibility or the, the energy that has been demonstrated on the streets uh, of Sofia in 2020. Um, in this sense, I would call this protest a quest for democracy. And again, this is rather a civil, uh, civic energy. It's not uh, so uh, much a political one. And whether this transformation is going to happen, uh, it's exactly something that we're going to see with, with, um, with the elections. Um, again, like this is something that we observed in many countries, both European and non-European, uh, this quest for democracy and people taking the streets to, uh, to oppose uh, state capture, corruption and all systematic issues that appear. In this sense, I think that the Bulgarian election will be um, a moment in which we can assess whether a protest is still an efficient or effective strategy of uh, citizen empowerment in times of, uh, again, state capture, illiberal democracy, populism across Central and Eastern Europe. Um, what what I, I would also like to, to point to, um, referring to, to Dimitri's argument, whether Bulgaria is uh, like a uh, whether the government, the current government is a strong man uh, or uh, it needs this uh, support network. I think that this is something that exists um, in, in, in many countries in the region. Basically, all these strong men, they cannot survive without their support network, without this cartel. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that in the Bulgarian case, this cartel is more visible. So for the past 10 years, we have um, at least two um, um, people who were, um, let's say, um, close to, to, to different uh, um, uh, mafia circles and they were, uh, currently they live outside of the country, but they were related to, to the current government through, um, through a number of scandals. Um, and just moving to um, the, the role of the elections and how this may, may change uh, Bulgaria's uh, position uh, in Europe, I would say that, again, like the question um, about North Macedonia, it's on the table. And I think that Bulgaria has uh, still has the chance to be back on the pro-European agenda by solving it uh, and by, by uh, having this chance with, with, the, with the new government. And on the other hand, it matters enormously whether the new government is going to be able to deal with some of the systematic issues in order to move uh, from uh, from the cor corruption uh, bottom which usually which uh, at, at the moment bulgaria occupies and just the final sentence about uh, about uh, the media freedom um, i i used to work as a journalist i i worked uh, for the bulgarian national television for many years uh, and i can say that there are a couple of uh, interesting um, processes that are happening right now. Yes, the oligarchic model that Dimitri mentioned has been in place for years, the decline of media freedom. But what is interesting is that for the past years, we have very, very uh, significant number of prominent journalists who were either forced to quit media or they took this decision just because they felt tired to, to fight against the, the systematic problems. The lack of transparency is there, uh, but what we can observe right now is that uh, 
a lot of oligarchs are actually actually stepping back or they're trying to to remain less visible just because they saw that um, having media businesses and like uh, stating the ownership very openly creates very serious problems for them as well. So I believe that in this, um, after the elections and in the next years, we're going to see changes uh, in terms of ownership, but also maybe there will be new actors appearing on the stage in terms of taking responsibility about certain decisions. Thank you for listening. This was Visegrad Insight podcast episode with special feature on Bulgaria elections and best holidays greetings from Visegrad Insight team and especially Quincy Klut and Wojciech Przybylski. <laughs>